0: You're listening to Westside Church. For more information, visit us at westsideinfo.com. Well, good morning, God's church. Good, good, good Good to be amongst you as they worship our God and King together. Today is a very special day. It's been 23 years since the girl of my dream said yes. So, my, uh, my battle station mate, we've weathered a lot together and I love you and it's looking forward to the next many, many rounds, many rounds together. Um, also, something very historic took place uh, on Friday. Recently, the highest court in the land uh, made a historic decision and something we should praise God for in particular. Um, praising him because, again, it's not a political issue, the decision that the Supreme Court made. It is solely a moral, a moral issue. Uh, we as church believe that in the sanctity of the human life, uh, that all mankind has been created in the image of God, and that all of us, those who have been created in his image, means every single one of us are image bearers. Real quick, before we jump into our passage, Uh, Psalm 139, 13 through 16 proclaims and declares, For you, Father, formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me as yet were none of them. And the fact and the reality that our God wove us, knew us at the moment of conception, it's absolutely beautiful. Beautiful thing. Uh, another small uh, bit, I'd like to personally invite you um, to my father-in-law's memorial service. Uh, it's now it'll be down in Sacramento at the church that he helped uh, start many 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 eons ago down in Sacramento New Hope Christian Fellowship uh, address you can get uh, from me later or uh, you can call the office or Talk with Sita or Richard Paradise probably memorize the address okay, uh, 6240 Verner <laughs> at Verner Avenue. There you go <laughs> down in Sacramento. It's four o'clock on July 6th. i would love to have you there. He um, was very instrumental uh, in so many ways so, so many ways. Um, one, for me, really helped me understand uh, eschatology a lot better, meaning the, under, the, the plan of God for the end of the age, uh, and really poured into me a far greater and a better understanding of uh, the nation of Israel and her role in God's redemptive plan of history. Uh, one of his things that he also uh, really pushed for on his trumpet call uh, was the idea of the steps prior the Messiah returning. So one of those is talked about in Matthew 24. It says, um, And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will ra- rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be fandom and earthquakes in various places. Uh, last week, I think it was Thursday or Friday, there was a massive earthquake in Afghanistan. It reported about thousands some people died. Again, it's not the end. These things must take place but because, as Jesus goes on, all these are but the beginnings of birth pains. The idea is the anticipation before the child arrives. The intensity of the birth pains will increase. Just as the intensities of these famines and the earthquakes and the wars and rumors will intensify prior to the time of the Messiah, But the end is not yet. So do not be afraid. Do not be alarmed knowing that Jesus Christ is on his way back. I encourage you to... Wait for him expectantly. So that, that was, uh, that's all free. So <laughs> that was a little, little intro. So we are going to look at a passage in Luke chapter 22. Uh, you have it in your notes. You have the Matt Frost Sermon Edition notes, and also just the passage and then blank spots all over it. So it's there for you to take as many notes as you choose uh, to, to, take, uh, to take down. Uh, We're going to be continuing on in this series of uh, foundations, looking at some of the foundational elements of what we believe as followers of Jesus Christ and how we are following them here, particularly at Westside. Three weeks ago, we looked at uh, the path of the narrow gate and what it takes to make it, to find that gate and walk through that narrow gate and what it takes to bring along others through that. Then we looked at the warnings of the coming of the age prior to the return of Jesus. And for us to be aware of the false prophets and the false teachers that will inevitably rise up prior the return of our Messiah. And then last week, Joe preached an excellent sermon on fatherhood and how we as fathers can show the love of Christ not only to their own children, but to those around them as they follow Christ. So today, we're going to talk about something that we do here at Westside each time that we gather together as a community. And that is taking part of communion, uh, also known as the Lord's Supper. Uh, Honestly, this has been a a pretty, was a pretty difficult sermon to put together. Uh, One, because it really convicted me. Uh, And some of my understandings are misunderstandings of what really is all entailed when we partake of the bread or the cracker and the juice and the wine. And I pray as we go through this together that we will grow as a community in understanding and appreciation for all that's included when we partake in the Lord's Supper together as followers of Jesus Christ. Now, this is one of the one of two ordinances or sacraments that Jesus gave to his followers. The other is baptism, which we'd mentioned in the announcements, uh, July 3rd. I will have the opportunity for you to get baptized. If you have declared Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and have not yet baptized. been baptized, I encourage you to partake in that as one of the things that we are to do as followers of Jesus Christ. It's an outward declaration, both to the physical and the spiritual world, of who you, as a follower of Jesus Christ, are pledging your allegiance to. And it also and it just identifies you as being part of the household of faith. So I encourage you, if you have not yet been baptized, I encourage you to do so. The other sacrament or ordinance that was established by our Messiah is what we're going to talk about today, communion. Uh, this sacrament is filled with such beautiful and full meanings, all of which we will not be able to cover during this one sermon this morning. Uh, but I do want to take a look at some of the important aspects of what it is, the history behind it, why do we do it each time that we gather together, and is there anything that it points to in the future. Uh, so what exactly is Communion. Where where does this word come from? Where does this idea come from? Well, it's found in Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. It says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation? And the word that's translated participation in the English Standard Version, the ESV, it's the the text, the translation that I use um, currently at the moment, a fan of it. Uh, They translate this word participation from the Greek word of koinoneia. Cornelia, of course, you may have heard or been familiar with, is the idea of fellowship, or sharing in common, communion. So we share in common together. We break this bread that we break. The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in common in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We, who are many, are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Since we are many, those of us here in Christ's church participate in this meal together. So we're going to take a look at this account from the good doctor Luke here in Luke chapter 22. And I want to use his record given to us as a launching point uh, into the what, into the whys of this meal that we call the Lord's Supper. As as Luke's account is filled with uh, accounts of meals eating together. Uh, Nine of them all in total. And this one uh, is actually number seven. Some of you may think about the idea of number seven sometimes relates to the number of perfection and which it seems very fitting uh, that the Lord would, in his last will and testament, give us uh, a teaching lesson that points everything to him, the fulfillment of everything that was spoken about with regards to the Old Testament uh, example, uh, that meal that we call Passover. Uh, So let's get into it. Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 20. I'll read the text, and then we'll step through it and see uh, what the Lord will illuminate our minds with. So Luke chapter 22, verse 14, when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he says, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine Until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks. He broke it and gave it to them saying. This is my body. Which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup. After they had eaten saying. This cup that is poured out for you. Is the new covenant in my blood. So jumping back up to verse 14. And when the hour came. So we are told in the gospel accounts. And we're going to learn a new word this morning. Some of you may have heard it already. But the synoptic gospels. Synoptic is just a word that means seen together. And those three gospel records of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're given to us. each gives us a glimpse, a different perspective, a different view into the different settings that took place during Jesus' ministry while he was here on earth. And here we're given an intimate view in the setting which Jesus is with his 12 disciples, getting ready to eat a meal together, but it's not just an ordinary, everyday meal. You see, the disciples had prepared all the elements for this special meal. We see in the Gospel of Matthew that it's recorded for us that they secured a room and a house for Jesus and his disciples to be together. Mark tells us the disciples then went and prepared all the elements, and they gathered it together for this meal. And Luke tells us that a large upper room that was completely furnished was provided for them as they gathered together. And so with all these elements ready, the hour is now set, the room is prepared. Luke tells us that he reclined at table. Notice what Jesus is not doing. There is no frantic panic. There's no trying to escape and running out into the hills of the Judean wilderness. The hour had come for the beginning of the meal, and Jesus reclined. At a time when Jesus knew full well what was about to happen to him within the next 24 hours, he relaxed with his 12 apostles to share in this meal, demonstrating that Jesus was in full control, and what is about to transpire has not caught Jesus by surprise. In art, one of the most famous depictions of this scene was done masterfully well in the late 15th century by Leonardo da Vinci. I'm sure some of you are very familiar with this. However, there's something glaringly obviously wrong about this depiction. They're, seating. They're sitting at the table. They're not reclining. Uh, the next picture we have should give us the idea of what they may have been doing in, uh, in this scene. Reclining on their left side around this table, shared table in the middle. Um, This is kind of the picture that we should have as we're looking at this passage in this uh, this account. So, with this in mind, verse fifteen, he said to them, "I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover." With this phrase, "I have earnestly desired," in English, it doesn't really seem to capture the true essence and the real emotion and the intimacy that was behind this moment. This really should be translated with desire. I did desire to eat this Passover with you. Showing us that he anticipated this specific time, this special moment with the 12. His last teaching moment Jesus has with them. To explain to them, using the greatest object lesson known to man about his life, death, and resurrection, and return, of himself, You may be asking, what is this Passover that they're eating? And why this particular Passover does Jesus desire with desire to eat with them? The desire to share this meal is because he, Jesus Christ, is the fulfillment of the meal in which they are partaking in. The Old Testament meal of Passover, which is a type or an example or a shadow that pointed everything to what Jesus came to do for mankind, And these Jewish men who are gathered together are gathered together in some unknown, nondescript building somewhere in the city of Jerusalem. We know that for a fact. We know that because that is the place that any good Jew who would wish to obey Torah would be in Jerusalem for Passover. Deuteronomy 16.16 16 says, Three times a year your male shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is just another name for Passover, at the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. See, the place of the Lord's choosing is and has been and will continue to be Jerusalem. God told King Solomon that Jerusalem is the place that God has chosen for his name to be there. And so as they, Jesus and the twelve apostles, are gathered in Jerusalem, they're getting ready to partake in a meal that looked back at an event 1,500 years prior their time. And in this day, we are looking back at it 3,500 years back at the time in which Passover took place. Passover, that one time event that took place in the land of Egypt, in which God was going to put on a demonstration of his power over Pharaoh, and to bring out God's chosen people out of the land of bondage and into the land of promise and the land of freedom. In this demonstration, which involved taking an unblemished lamb, which was kept for four days until the 14th day of the month, at which point those households, that, those that feared God, were to take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. We are told on, continuing on in Exodus 12, that they are to eat this meal, they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. And the manner in which you shall eat it is with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. The reason that they were to eat it in haste is that very night the 10th plague was about to befall upon the land of Egypt, taking out those who had not placed the blood on the doorpost and taking out the firstborn of every family member. For that is the night that they are to leave and to leave in haste. For Exodus 12:12 12, 12 says, For I passed through the land of Egypt that night. I'll strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I'll execute judgments. I am Yahweh. The blood shall be assigned for you and the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to Yahweh throughout your generations, as a statute forever, and you shall keep it as a feast. So for almost 1,500 years, Passover was celebrated each year in Jerusalem. However, the Passover that took place the year Jesus Christ took part of this is unlike any other Passover in all of history. The meal and the events that followed this meal, specifically within 24 hours, have changed the course of history. The results of which that followed created a means for mankind to return to intimate fellowship with their creator, to allow then for mankind to enter into eternal fellowship with God, which is the result of this day that we are reading about, this Passover, when Jesus was sacrificed as the perfect sacrifice for all sin, So that's what sets the stage for this commonly called Lord's Supper, what we call communion. Going back to Luke chapter 22, verse 15, it says, he desires to have this meal before I suffer. The suffering of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the suffering of the Son of Man, the one who rides in the clouds above heaven, Daniel says, the second person of the Trinity, have come to earth to suffer, to rescue mankind from the wages of sin, which is death, to pay our penalty through his suffering, which led to his death. Jesus experienced things in ways that we cannot even comprehend when he says, I, before I suffer. When Jesus said to suffer, it meant both his severe pain and distress on both his body and his mind, physically and mentally. But it is through the other side of his suffering that our redemption has been bought. That for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now, after his suffering, seated on the right hand of our Father. This is such wonderful good news. This is part of the gospel message. His suffering is not the end of the story. Yes, in our story, Jesus is going to be leaving his disciples. Yes, he will die. However, he's going back to the Father, alive. And that is the wonderful part of the event that's here, this great hope that through this, the church gains something truly, truly incredible. Anticipation and hope. Verse 16 says, For I tell you, I'll not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. With the Lord's Supper Communion, there is certain hope. A promise is made here by our Messiah is that he will not eat or drink at this meal until some future point, at which point all prophecy will be fulfilled. When Jesus Christ comes back and we celebrate this meal with him in a joyous celebration of what he, what he accomplished for us, and it will be a time in which we will be removed from the very presence of sin. That is very hard to comprehend when we live in this deep, dark, dying world where the presence of sin is all around us. At this point in sharing this meal, we will be removed from the very presence of sin. I cannot comprehend that. But more than that, (laughs) if that's not enough, we will be able to see and share in this intimate meal with our Savior face to face. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 25 says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his peoples he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. Yes. This is that glorious meal in which we'll partake in, which John the Apostle in his revelation on the island of Patmos recorded for us. Revelation 19 says, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride, the church, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. If you are here today and here this morning, and you do not have an invitation to this glorious meal, that you do not have a place at this table, I want to personally invite you to give you an invitation to come and be a part of this meal. The only thing with this invitation is just an acceptance of this gift. The gift that Jesus Christ died for your sins, rose again on the third day, is alive forevermore, and is coming back to get you and bring you home. You accept that, you have assurance that you can have a place at this table. Jesus continues to provide us the hope of that great marriage supper of the Lamb. Verses 17 and 18. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks. He said, take this, divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. The Gospel of Matthew gives us a slightly different take, but still enforces the truth that there will be a far greater meal for us to look forward to with our Savior. Matthew 26, 29 says, I tell you, I'll not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. That day, the day in which we will be in our glorified state, freed from the presence of sin, seeing Jesus face to face and enjoying a meal with him in intimacy. So when we partake in communion, it is looking forward to that far better one with Jesus, that promised better one that will far exceed any of our expectations. And so now we come to the midpoint. Of our text, to the midpoint of Jesus' last will and testament. You see, in, in, this passage could be split up in two different sections. Verses 14 and 18 are looking back at the old covenant and what the Passover represented and the significance of it. The second half, verses 19 through 20, Jesus, in the middle of this celebration, attaches to this meal the real meaning and illuminates the minds around him that all along, this meal that they've been celebrating for years and years and years all pointed to himself. Verse 19 says, and he took bread. You may laugh at it, we think, Matt, why do you keep going on just taking three or four words at a time? But there's such beautifulness and detail that is in Scripture that if we go through it so quickly and hurriedly, I feel that we'd miss a lot of these things. So I encourage you, when you're reading scripture, to take your time, slow down, don't rush through reading the word. Because in here we see, and he took bread. He, Jesus Christ, the bread of life, that was born in the city of Bethlehem, the house of bread, is taking that common everyday item, and revealing to us, such significance to it. And when he had given thanks, this is the word that Luke has used. The Greek word is where we get the word for Eucharist. It's the idea of thanks or thanksgiving. It's used again in prior up in verse 17. But within this word, it conveys the idea of joyous grace. And this is the attitude that we should have as we approach the sacrament each time that we take it. With thanksgiving, with a joys and with grace. Jesus says, I broke it. He broke it, sorry, and he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When Jesus says this, he means it in a symbolic way, right? He's Not literally. In the fact that he's sitting with his disciples, holding bread in his hand as he broke the bread to share with his disciples, it would have been evident that they would not have thought that this is the body literally of Jesus Christ. But this is a piece of bread that signifies and points to something that we can do Together. And this part of Jesus sharing his body is the gospel message, right? It's the gift that's been given to us, the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, the perfect one given for us. And we are to do this as a remembrance. But recall that every Passover, the thoughts of every Jew that surround, surrounded the fact that what Passover represented for them in the past, the bondage in Egypt, the slavery in Egypt, And then the freedom and the promise of the exodus. But now this, Jesus turns it. He says this remembrance is not a complete recollection of the events that took place in the past. It also includes so much more. Includes recalling the entire person of Jesus Christ. Remembering in gratitude for that which was done on our behalf. We take the meal in remembrance in worship as we remember who God is and what he did. For us, we take in remembrance in obedience by partaking in this meal. We are obeying the command to do this as often as you get together. It entails for us to identify as a believer in Jesus Christ, declaring and proclaiming that our penalty has been paid in full. And this, in turn, should help us focus our identity as believers, turn us from just individual soul based transformation, which is part of the gospel and our walking to become more like Christ. But when we take part in communion, it should open our eyes and reveal to us that we are taking this as a corporate identity, that we as believers in Jesus Christ are partaking in this meal as members of the household of faith, as brothers and sisters in the Lord. And this remembrance, too, points us to the future, as only through Jesus do we have that certain hope of being fully restored and being plunged into a place where the very presence of sin ceases to exist. This is the remembrance that we are called to do. It's part of our identity as followers of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ. All the while, keeping in mind the eschatological hope, the hope of the future of in which Christ will return. Verse 20 says, And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. His blood is what was shed for us. And once we accept that truth of what he did for us, to accept the reality of his death, his blood frees us completely, completely from the penalty of death and allows us to live forever with our Savior, the perfect Lamb of God. The blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. And when the Father looks at us, for those who accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. He looks at us as one who is righteous, one who is right standing, only and solely based on the blood of Christ. This, in part, is why Jesus desired with desire to eat this Passover meal with his disciples, as he's teaching them and showing them that the fulfillment of this meal has arrived, this meal that was eaten and celebrated for over 1,500 years prior. Each of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, point to this reality. The reality that the blood of Jesus Christ of Nazareth established this new covenant. And it's what sets the transaction in place. Because to make a covenant is literally to cut an agreement. So when a covenant was made, animals were cut in two and were placed on either side. In two parties who would make an agreement or an arrangement, would state their terms of agreement, walk hand in hand through the cut animals. When they got to the other side, I would say, if either of us renege on our commitment in this agreement, let us become like the animals that we just walked before. This is seen most vividly in the covenant that was given to Abram in Genesis chapter 15. But we don't see two parties walking through that covenant agreement we see that God alone walked through the cut animals, establishing that this covenant will be upheld by God himself and that there is nothing that man can do to uphold this agreement. If God upholds that covenant, then we know based upon his character that's an eternal covenant, thus securing that eternal covenant, the promise of the land to Abram's offspring. But now we have a new covenant, again, where blood is being shed. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The word that's being used here for covenant is actually one that points to one party that walks alone in establishing this agreement. This one party is, of course, God himself. But why is this being established as a new covenant? Well, it's a new arrangement, a new agreement established by God that includes complete complete forgiveness of sins and secures a promised eternal inheritance through the blood of Christ. This covenant is different than other blood covenants that the Jews would have been very familiar with. This one involved, there's a, different, a, a covenant where I'll take a look at in uh, Exodus chapter 24 that involved shedding of blood that was actually followed by a meal. So let's take a look at some of the elements that, that were recorded in this event in order that we can hopefully see the fulfillment of Jesus Christ that's established in this new covenant. So if you flip with me or scroll over however way you go through your Bibles to Exodus chapter 24. And as you're scrolling, reading, flipping, clicking over, just kind of set the scene so we can get a little bit of context of where we're at in this narrative that the people, of Egypt, the people of Israel have left Egypt. They are now going through the wilderness, and they're at the base of Mount Sinai. The people have received from the Lord how they are to live out their lives towards him and towards one another, and that was done through the Ten Commandments. God promises to give the people the land that he promised them, and now we get here in chapter 24. The covenant is then being confirmed. So as I go through this passage, uh, you'll hear me say uh, the name of the Lord is Yahweh. So when you see L-O-R-D in, your cap- in small capitals in your, in your scriptures, that's the personal name that's been revealed to us as Yahweh. So chapter 24 of Exodus. And he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you, and Aaron, Nadiv, Abihu, and the 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to Yahweh, but the other shall not come, up, come near, and the people shall not come up with him. And Moses came and told the people all the words of Yahweh and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of Yahweh. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and twelve pillars, according to the twelve tribes of Israel, and he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to Yahweh. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he threw it on the altar. He then took the blood of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, "All that Yahweh has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient." And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, "Behold, the blood of the covenant that Yahweh has made with you in accordance with all of these words. Notice what it says here, that Moses threw blood upon the altar. The altar is now sprinkled in blood, showed that the people's sins were forgiven. Atonement had been made. God had prepared the way to reconcile man with himself. That sprinkling of blood that was done upon the altar satisfied the wrath of God for that one moment in time. Then here in verse 8, it says, We see that the blood was sprinkled upon the people. This showed that God accepted their sacrifice and that they were now included in the covenant through the forgiveness of sins. Verses 9 and 11 says, Then Moses and Aaron and Adav and Abihu and the 70 of the elders of Israel went up. And there was under his feet, as it were, pavement of sapphire stones, like the very heaven for clearness, and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Moses, Aaron, Aaron's son, and the 70 elders share in a meal with the Lord in intimacy. And notice what the scripture here says that I failed to read it the first time. In verse 10, and they saw the God of Israel. They beheld him. The intimacy with the creator of the universe that was made possible only through the shedding of blood. But this meal and this type of intimacy is not repeated until we hear the very words of God again in Matthew 26. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You see, the blood that was shed that Moses had was only done for that one and particular time. It was just done by, with, through an animal, not done through the perfect, everlasting God. The blood of Jesus is perfect in every manner. So perfect is the blood of Christ that his death, his sacrifice, offered on the day of Passover, dying exactly at the time in which the Passover lambs were to be slain, paid the penalty for all of our sins. Hebrews 10, verses 10 through 12, tells us that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Each time we share in communion, we as a people, as his children, we are partaking in this meal together, recalling what Jesus did for us and to do this as often as we eat it. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the, death, the Lord's death until he comes. So this memorial meal that we are about to take part in together uses common elements of just bread and wine. I thank God that he did not set up this memorial just in Israel, just in Jerusalem. What if Jesus had told his disciples to set up a mound of stones in remembrance of this event? If we could travel there maybe once in a lifetime To go see it, we might be able to see pictures of it online or see a cool video on YouTube that would memorialize the spot. But through what Christ did here, it allows us to partake anywhere in the world that we go to actively participate in remembering what Christ has done with us. The fact that believers can go anywhere in the world—the heights of the Scottish Isles, to the dry air lands of Death Valley, to the tropical rainforest in Africa—and take Part in communion together with other believers is absolutely beautiful. And when you do this, when you partake in communion, you do so, you you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What this is proclaiming has far-reaching implications for mankind. It shows us that God made the sacrifice for us all, establishing this covenant, this agreement, with his own eternal blood, Never again will animal sacrifices be needed year after year to have communion with our Lord. It proclaims that our God is not dead. He is most certainly alive, and each time that we take part, we proclaim, we preach, we announce that Jesus is coming back. When we proclaim his death, that is our victory cry as believers, that is us waving our banner for the kingdom of Christ, proclaiming that both death and sin have both been defeated we proclaim that our God is very much alive and is coming to bring us back home. That is that cry of Maranatha. Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. That is our joyous cry as we partake in this meal together. So when we come to take communion, or partake in the Lord's Supper, there may be some of you that feel unworthy to partake. For a believer in Christ to feel unworthy to take communion really is a contradiction in terms. If someone confesses their sins, they are completely forgiven in Christ. Mm -hmm. The purpose of communion is to remind us that we stand in our relationship with God not on the basis of how worthy that we are, but completely on the worthiness of the lamb that was slain in our behalf. You may feel that there are certain things, certain behaviors, certain actions that you need to do like days prior to coming to take communion, to prove something before God, before you can be restored to the Father, but that's not at all what the gospel is about. Ask him, seek him for forgiveness, and then live out the good news that you have been completely forgiven. It is through his blood that was shed once, and for all, for all of us. There's absolutely nothing that we can do to establish or uphold this terms of the new covenant established by our Lord. If you have sinned, Repent. Ask God for forgiveness and then come to the table. Again, not because you feel unworthy because that is just a denial of the gospel. I'm going to ask the musicians to come forward. But if this is you, if you feel unworthy about it, I would encourage you just to seek the Lord. Ask for forgiveness. We're going to take part now in this intimate meal Together, this really is a time that we should also be aware of our motives. To make sure, make sure that we are partaking in this intimate meal, that we're not taking part of this intimate meal and for the wrong reasons. To take it just because everyone stands up around you and comes and takes the meal is an unworthy manner. But to take it alongside of those that are around you in unity, in fellowship with the Father, with a focus on remembering Christ, that truly is a worthy manner. As the psalmist wrote in chapter 116, we are called to lift up the cup of your salvation and call on the name of Yahweh to offer to him the sacrifice of thanksgiving. So let us do that as we partake in communion together in unity as we give thanks and rejoice for who Jesus Christ of Nazareth is, as our Lord and Savior, for what he did for us and what he will do for us. The elements that we have here at the front and in the back And let this be a time of joyous anticipation, joyous gratitude as we do this in remembrance of him.